With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I am ready to record. <laughs> can, can you hear me? Yes, I should have cleared my throat first, though, because it, that wasn't very good. Oh, no, that was fine. Why, when you call me, don't you throw these into, like, the beginning of it? I don't know why that's not your intro. Would you like me to do that? No. I think that's a great that idea. Would only, yeah, it would only be cool if I didn't have to tell you to do it. No, but I think it's a great idea, and I, I like that we collaborate and do that. Collaborate. Collaborate and listen. Like that? Okay. I should probably just write you a song. Well, yeah, you probably should write me a song. And what, what, How would it begin? Hello? I don't know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I just definitely stole Lionel Richie. Okay, I got but it. That's how I have to answer the phone, because you just call me. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye. Hey everybody, thanks for downloading episode 146 of the Golf Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host as always, Adam from GolfUnfiltered.com. Follow me on Twitter, at GolfUnfiltered. Send me an email, GolfUnfiltered at gmail.com. Today's guest is Mr. John Kim, now of U.S. Kids Golf. John and I have connected on Twitter in the past, and he is going to share a story of all the different things that he has done throughout his uh, career in golf. And I think you'll agree that there are very few people on this earth that have done as much as he has and who has seen and met the people that John Kim has as well. Just a quick little backstory, and uh, John, if you're listening to this, I hope you don't mind me sharing it. But, um, you know, I've talked about on Twitter a couple times some of the uh, the mistakes that I make uh, helping make this podcast happen. John and I actually had an interview uh, about, a you know, two or three days ago prior to recording this interview that you're about to hear the entire recording got lost it was a complete user error thing it was just oh god it was so frustrating and i was embarrassed and mortified and of course as i knew he would john was so gracious and he was uh, so welcoming to this opportunity to do a mulligan with him and that's what we did today and so you know the good thing about this situation trying to find the silver lining and positive spin on this is that I learned a lot about John, and I had the opportunity to talk to him twice now uh, about his career. Definitely as, or if not more impressed with what he's done the second time I've talked to him, but I uh, really do appreciate, and just goes to show the type of person that he is, and uh, really uh, how a lot of people are in this game. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation with John. Before we get to the episode, though, I would just want to throw out a quick reminder to go out to our Patreon page, P-A-T, reon.com slash golf unfiltered if you want to uh, offer some support to the show and i'll try to do a better job by not making those mistakes anymore but anyway i hope you guys enjoy this conversation sit back relax here's john kim Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. As I mentioned in the introduction, I am happy to welcome for the first time on the show, Mr. John K. 
Kim from U.S. Kids Golf. John, how are you today? Hey, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller. So it's a, <laughs> it's a great thing to be here. It's, it's one of the favorite things I hear on sports radio. I know that you and I have talked before, and you said that maybe you're, you're not listening to as much sports radio anymore? I, uh, I, I listened. Um, I do listen some. I wouldn't say that I'm a, a devout listener, but I, I listen enough just to make me angry, and then, uh, and then I find something else. Nice, nice, nice. So you're in the Atlanta area, and I'm in the Chicago area, but we've got a, it, we're recording this on a Saturday. It's NFL playoffs. It's a, it's a big day for both of us. Uh, it's a, a, a very big deal uh, for, for me. Um, the, the whole Chicago New England thing, you're going to have to explain to me one day, but even more so than that, as a Patriots fan, I don't know how you get excited about a divisional round playoff game, but as a Falcons fan, uh, last year's success notwithstanding, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, every playoff game is a big deal. Every opportunity to, to, to do something like that for us is a, is a very big deal. And it's been so football crazy uh, around here this week, uh, depending on when. Uh, your listeners are listening to this, but we just had a college football national championship here yep. uh, this week as well. So the city's basically been uh, just painted in red and black, and uh, and 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 in a sense, just kind of uh, killing time between football games. So uh, it's been neat. Yeah, man. It's uh, I'll tell you that story one day about uh, it's it's completely a bandwagon story. I'll just be completely honest to everyone. List. I definitely jumped on the bandwagon a, a while ago, but. Uh, before we get too ahead of ourselves here, John, for the folks who might not know the name of John Kim, why don't you let us know a little bit about how you got involved in the game? And you've been uh, you've been at some pretty or you've been involved with some pretty impressive uh, organizations through your career. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, uh, for those that haven't heard of John Kim, congratulations, because <laughs> that means you've got a normal life. Um, but I have been probably, uh, as far as people I know, um, you know, a very, very, very small amount of people get as lucky as I have. And, and I, I, I'm not trying to be give you guys any false humility there. That was just been, uh, for a guy who did not grow up in the game, uh, who didn't have any background in golf, who doesn't have any particular talent uh, in golf, uh, I've gotten to do some really cool things. So uh, the long story short is that uh, I had an opportunity uh, to get involved in golf in a real peripheral level. Um, when I was working my first job out of college, I worked at uh, CNN Headline News. Mm-hmm. And we had to work overnights. When you first uh, get that job, you get the graveyard shift. And so I had to find something to do during the day. <clears throat> and uh, I had interned at CNN Sports. And so me and some of the guys that I'd met, we decided we were going to become golfers. Hmm. And so we go to this little par three executive course here in the Atlanta area. And uh, as it happens with so many other people, the bug hits. And I decide, boy, I really love playing. At the same time, uh, and this tells you uh, I'm a little bit older than a lot of your listeners, but uh, this was when the Internet was first kind of getting mainstream uh, traction. Wow. And it found a website while looking for places to go play golf called AtlantaGolfer.com. Uh, and I realized that the site uh, didn't have as much information as I wanted. So I contacted the site and asked them, hey, you've got basic information. You've got phone numbers, directions, those things. But you don't have any course reviews. You don't have any tips from the pros. You don't have any images. 
And they said, well, we're not really golfers. We just thought this was a real opportunity, and we're programmers. Uh, so I volunteered my services to be their editorial director. Hmm. And uh, they were concerned because they said, well, we don't have any kind of budget to pay you. And I was like, ah, don't worry about it. Just As long as I'm official, uh, this is all I need. And uh, so this was great because, as I said, he, the golf bug had hit. Uh, but I didn't think I'd ever escape the little par three executive course, uh, you know, layout. I thought that was my, my life in golf, which I'd have been pretty happy with, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but all of a sudden, I'm now executive director for AtlantaGolfer.com, and I start contacting courses everywhere in Atlanta. And they start welcoming me, welcoming me out. Come on out. Play our course. Treat you to a round of golf, you and a friend. Treat you to lunch, whatever. We... we they knew that the value of a good review, even back then, uh, how powerful it could be. So that developed, uh, as part of that, Atlanta was hosting uh, a couple of golf events. The Bell South Classic mm-hmm. uh, was here in Atlanta as a tour event at the time. Um, there was an LPGA event. There were all kinds of uh, golf going on. And so I developed a little bit of a niche here in the Atlanta market. What just so happened, uh, as this was progressing and progressing well, um, the company, Turner Broadcasting, which is the uh, parent company of CNN, right. also started a online sports division, um, Turner Sports Interactive. And I, rem- I remember that, that. Yeah, I remember Turner yeah. Sports. So they created an interactive uh, a licensing deal with uh, a lot of major sports leagues, and that included NASCAR, which was their first, uh, the NBA. And their third was the PGA of America. And that was uh, someone that I had interned with, was now kind of an executive there, and said, wow, nobody knows more about golf than you, John. Why don't you come over and work with us on PGA.com? Hmm. And so, uh, you know, that didn't take me very long to decide that was going to be a fun move. <laughs> and uh, so I went to PGA.com. That was in 2006. And immediately I am, you know, off to cover the Ryder Cup and the PGA Championship and the Club Pro Championship, which, by the way, is my favorite event in golf. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm working with uh, guys uh, that are the head pros at Whistling Straits and Kiowa and Pebble Beach, and all of them, as golf pros do, because they're the best people in the world, but they'd like, John, come out and see us sometime. Hmm. And so I'm just in heaven. And for 10 years, I had the best job in golf. I was riding around in Scotland with Tom Watson. Uh, I'm walking the fairways of Pebble Beach with their head pro uh, at the time, Chuck Dunbar. Uh, I'm, I'm playing at Band and Dunes. I mean, I'm just having the greatest time. So, uh, and then, and then, I had an opportunity not to bore you with too many uh, details, but uh, after uh, ten years, and I'm having a great time, and I feel like we're doing some good things. Um, one of the people and organizations that I met during my time was uh, the Folds of Honor, um, based out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, technically Owasso. And as I got to know their leadership, they had asked uh, me to consider possibly. Oh, let me back up for a moment. So sure. I got a little bit. I got a little bit uh, lucky. I had unbelievable support staff around me at PGA.com, and uh, based on uh, some early decisions that were made uh, and a lot of a lot of uh, uh, fun risks if you want to call it that 
and the PGA were, was phenomenal about it. Um, we were one of the first sports organizations to really try to make a dent in the idea of social media when it came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, because uh, we were one of the one of the first, uh, we were also very fortunate to be recognized as uh, one of the first. Uh, and so I actually collected a few industry awards for my work kind of in that digital space and really? social space. That I was so, not aware of. No, that, that was, uh, that was, that was, like I said, uh, I'm probably, I probably got some trophies that probably deserved other people's names on it. Uh, but that was fine. Cause I wouldn't give it a back. It was like, <laughs> I would say, no, you can, you hold on to that we, thing. We can share it. We'll just keep it at my house. Right. That's fine. Um, the, uh, uh, and, and so, um, it opened up some opportunities for me. Some, some other organizations would, would inquire as to, um, if I, if, if I had any uh, interest in potentially doing something different. Well, the one that really struck me was this uh, opportunity at the Folds of Honor, because mm-hmm. uh, as you know, and as a lot of people know, um, you, you reach certain points in your life where uh, you really want to feel like you're doing something that's for the betterment of the whole. And uh, like I said, I could have been happy at PGA dot com and turner sports for a very long time it is such a great place uh but i felt like if i were ever going to do something different in my life with whatever skills and resources and uh connections uh that i had had accumulated and aggregated over the years uh this would be something this would be a great mission to work with and for over a year it really really was um but to their credit folds of honor really grew quickly and uh, at some point, we realized that the <clears throat> logistics of me living in Atlanta and working out of Atlanta just wasn't very uh, either cost-efficient or strategic uh, to to what Folds of Honor needed. Right. So we took a little bit of time. Uh, it was just like, okay, uh, let's find somebody that would be that could do that a little bit um, in in better proximity. But I wasn't going to move to Owasso, Oklahoma. Um, and then I got again, just kind of grace of God type uh, move, uh, I get a phone call, really, right as I thought, okay, what do I want to do next, um, from an organization that is right down the street from my house called U.S. Kids Golf. Mm-hmm. Now, I knew of U.S. Kids Golf, but I didn't really know what U.S. Kids Golf was all about. Uh, I thought of them as a, a equipment company for kids, and that's absolutely true. But it's not just the equipment company. It's, it's by far the, the uh, largest share of kids' youth equipment. But even more, uh, they, they host uh, 1,300 tournaments a year. Wow. From local tours all the way up to the World Championship, which we can talk more about here in a bit. Uh, and they certify coaches. They are a behemoth, huge, uh, kind of almost dominant organization when it comes to everything youth golf. Well, I wondered when I first got there, Adam, if youth golf would would satisfy my my ambitions about golf. Sure. Because um, I was used to being inside at the Ryder Cup and these media centers that held 500 people and all of those things. And I, I wanted things on scale. I wanted I wanted to be uh, I wanted to impress with just magnitude and and grandeur. Uh, and I don't know that I've ever been happier 
Um, really? And, and that's saying something because uh, I've always been very uh, blessed and, and happy in my in my career. Uh, but in this particular position, um, I actually see on a real tangible day-to-day basis the difference that this organization makes in not just in golf, uh, but as our, our mission statement reads, in families. I, I got a text this morning from a gentleman from England that I have never met, mm-hmm. um, and he sent me a, uh, a, a he sent me a direct message um, via I can't remember if it was Twitter or Facebook, and he just said that he and his son were in um, the Tampa area playing in the Copperhead Classic, which is one of our regional events, mm-hmm. and that he just wanted me to be aware that he had uh, they had tweeted out a photo of them there at Innisbrook and that they were having a great time. And that's it. These are the kind of notes that I get all the time. Nice. Uh, about um, how, how much fun uh, or how important it is that these bonding moments uh, that families have together as they travel and play golf. So we, we encourage parents to caddy for their players uh, in the tournaments. So all of that said, um, uh, these are real, real, moments for families to create memories together so i think you asked me for a short background <laughs> on my career life and i think i just went on about probably i would have been gonged out uh, a long time ago no uh, no that's just a long way of saying that i've been really lucky i've been involved uh in golf on just about every level and uh you know everyone from arnold palmer jack nicholas tiger woods all the way down to uh the the six-year-old girl who got the ball in the air for the first time. Uh, and I've, I've been, you know, a, a, a close part of all of those uh, success stories. And uh, that's just been the greatest career route I can I can even imagine, much less being able to experience it firsthand. The, the fact that you've been such a journeyman across many different levels of the game is the reason we wanted you on. And, and John, it's, <laughs> it's interesting to to hear all these stories, but you touched on something in your most, uh, when you were talking about joining us kids golf, you know, you, you came from the, the, the grand scale of the PGA tour and some of the biggest names that fans of this sport will always know. And then you go towards uh, just a different world. As you explained, how long did it take you to realize how rewarding that jump was from the professional ranks down to as you mentioned, kids learning the game for the first time. You know, I think it kind of goes. It's not like a, it's not a a, a gradual uh, realization. It's almost yeah, that that hockey stick uh, type graph. Sure. You know, you slowly building, slowly building. You're thinking, okay, I, I I get it. I sort of see it. This is this is nice. Um, I had a chance in 2016 for the first time to go to the U.S. Kids Golf World Championship. Uh, it's held every year at Pinehurst. Uh, and you can imagine the logistical uh, challenge to host over 1,500 players, uh, over 12 golf courses, wow. um, and families representing 54 countries. We're talking language issues. We're, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we're talking uh, just a hotel and food and all of those things that, that are, that are going to be a challenge for everybody. And, and so, uh, but I'm there and, uh, I see this parade that they have and these kids line up. It's, it's a combination of what I would call, uh, the Olympic parade of nations. 
you know, where the countries walk in under their banner and they're all sure. cheering. And so that, that's the beauty of it. Now, the passion of it, the closest thing I can think of is, is almost like the Ryder Cup. Because these kids have so much pride in who they're representing, not just themselves and their families, but their nations. Um, and so, you know, you walk over to the contingent from uh, Colombia, or you walk over to the contingent from Australia, and they've traveled all the way around the world. And they are, you know, they're dressed in team colors. They've got, even though they're not a team, they're each playing individually. But for the purpose of this parade, they typically have, uh, you know, the same color or the same type of T-shirt on or soft shirt. Um, they bring gifts, you know, people I've never met. And I'm, I'm walking out of there with all these nice little trinkets, uh, koala bears from Australia and, and uh, keychains. And I've got a little collection here on my desk at home. Uh, I can't really describe it better in a way than you really, really enjoy it. You take it in as both an experience and as, as a connection. Uh, and, and I don't know, um, I've never really had a, a particular affinity for, uh, I shouldn't say a particular affinity, but I've never had a particular calling mm-hmm. for youth golf. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was so caught up in golf at, at on the other end of the spectrum uh, when it comes to uh, who's going to qualify for the majors, who's going to win the Ryder Cup. Uh, but there's a certain uh, both innocence and excitement about golf at, that's happening there. Uh, it's still World Championships. Um, they did a documentary on this uh, U.S. Kids Golf World Championship a few years ago called The Short Game. Right. Uh, and that's available on Netflix. I think uh, it's a Justin Timberlake production. That's right. Um, but uh, it was, uh, <clears throat> you know, we've had Golf Digest there. We've had the Golf Channel there. We've had Sports Illustrated and ESPN uh, has, has come and covered this. Uh, so it's it's big. But at the same time, you know, down on it, down on it. When you get to the micro level, uh, it, it's a dad just proud of his kid. You know, a mom uh, seeing hours of driving her son or daughter to practice and uh, local and regional events now culminating in this world championship. Now, some of the kids there are going to be world champions. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, probably our most famous world champion alumni is you know, Lexi Thompson has won it. Right. Um, but. Uh, you know, winning is so good, but really more important is accomplishing, doing your best. If you can shoot a good score, uh, I, you know, I've seen kids, you know, who didn't crack the top 50, and they are out celebrating because he had his best score of his life here at the World Championship, you know, just rising to the occasion. And, and maybe that's a 78, uh, and, and the winners are shooting 68. doesn't matter. Right. So. Yeah, I, I would encourage everybody who loves golf to uh, come see one of these uh, youth golf events. Now, Adam, I know you and I have talked before in the past about uh, the health and the state of golf. Yes. And I look at what happens at this level, and it gives me a great confidence that golf is in I mean, I would say it was because you mentioned 1,500 kids across 54 countries. To me, that doesn't sound like a game that's hurting. Now, and, and, and so I, I get frustrated, and, uh, you know, I think golf will continually evolve. I think golf will uh, grow at, at varying speeds, and there will be some hills and valleys. But the, the doomsday 
forecast, the doom and gloom, uh, sports and, you know, analysts, uh, I, I don't know what they are looking at or what they're comparing things to. I know in terms of uh, business, uh, many of the companies that I know are, are doing better than they ever have. <clears throat> now, you know, is it true that we still have some challenges uh, where golf courses overbuilt back in the 90s and 2000s? Yeah, probably. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the game is going anywhere. Uh, again, Things will evolve. Things will change. Um, and there will continually be new efforts to make the game a little bit more accessible, a little bit more affordable, a little bit more uh, or a little bit less time-consuming uh, for certain people. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you love golf like I do, and, and I don't just love working in golf, uh, I love working in golf in part because I love playing golf. I love all the benefits that I get from going out and playing, and, and I know you've laughed before when I said, you know, I'm averaging about 130, 140 rounds a year. That's just insane. Um, <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I get angry when it's not more, because I really enjoy it, and, I, and I'm not the only one. There's so many people like me out there uh, that golf is going to be in good hands. It is, uh, I don't think that it needs to be um, pigeonholed as elitist and only a certain segment of the population uh you know, we'll be out there enjoying it. I think that it's going to continue to be a very uh, open sport where anybody that really has an interest has an opportunity to at least go and try it. Now, golf, as as an industry, uh, you know, has certain inherent costs on it. Sure. So maybe not everybody is is the right audience, and and. That's okay. There can be an aspirational aspect to it. Uh, but I've heard you say before, uh, golf doesn't necessarily have to mean uh, the green grass facility and the 18-hole walk with caddy or, or whatever it is that uh, people traditionally think of it. Right. Um, the definition's changing over time. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, uh, my wife, does. I, I pay more money than I even like to to, to – belong to a club and my wife probably couldn't find it without using ways uh but she loves top golf yeah and she loves uh you know and 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 so she enjoys the she enjoys the athleticism of of it uh of, of swinging a club um she just doesn't feel like she has the time to go out or the discipline quite honestly to uh, uh to strategize her way around a course for a certain amount of hours um that's okay. Yeah. I would love for her to play. I would love for us to enter our enter our twilight years, you know, plotting our way around uh, a good West Coast swing. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, whether that ever happens or not, uh, I'll know that you know I can still take her to uh, a type golf or even a driving range, and I think she'd have a good time. Well, John, your twilight years are years ahead, so you got plenty of time <laughs> to worry about that. <laughs> I hope you know what's funny is when you talk about just the way that the the definition of golf is changing and the way that it's being played is changing at top golf driving ranges and the like, and I'm sure there's other concepts that are coming out. But one of the things that I know you and I have talked about is just understanding how people play the game differently, just from a from a ability standpoint, as it relates to how far they hit the ball. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, what are some things that you've seen that are changing in the game regarding just, Hey, let's, let's get this 
this show moving a little bit quicker when we get out there to play so it doesn't take all day this uh adam thank you for bringing that up this is one of the things that uh uh i have struggled with over the years and i think uh recently i found something that that really kind of resonates uh with with industry folks who understand the game uh and myself certainly it kind of hit me uh pretty hard um so as you said, everybody, golf is an ego-driven game. And uh, I'm very guilty of that, too. You know, you, you you show up to the course, and you don't want to necessarily be the one that suggests, hey, let's move up a set of tees. Even though, I think, by almost all measures, most golfers would enjoy it. But, you know, there's a limited number of tee options. Let's just say there's a, a tips, a blue, a white, and a red mm-hmm. uh, at any golf courses. And guys just have that ego. I've, I've got to at least play the blues because that's just what they do. Right. So, um, so the U.S. Kids Golf Foundation uh, came up with a concept, studying some data that said that every club in your bag is a fixed percentage of how far you carry your driver, how far your how far your driver carries the ball. Uh, let's just, for example, say 240. Sure. And I think the 7-iron, uh, uh, don't quote me on that. I don't have the numbers in front of me. But the 7-iron, just for example, would be around 63% of that. Okay. Uh, and so it doesn't matter. If that holds true no matter whether you carry it 240 or 140. Now, the idea was, would it be more fun if every golfer had the same experience Experience on a whole, as opposed to trying to scale the course using the tees that exist now, so that golfers would hit the ball into the same landing area. Hmm. Because everyone knows if you've got 170 yards in, for some people that might be a six or seven iron, and for other people it's a three wood. And the person that's hitting the six or seven iron is going to beat the person that's hitting the three wood to get that, make that happen, 99 times out of 100. Right. So, uh, the U.S. Kids Golf Foundation purchased a golf facility uh, in Southern Pines, North Carolina, called Longleaf Golf Club. It's been renamed Longleaf Golf and Family Club. And they installed seven sets of tees. And each of those tees are different colors, but they don't correspond to the traditional red, white, uh, blue, black. Uh, And they ask you, uh, to figure out how far you hit the ball in the air, and they have a driving range there that will help you um, determine that. <clears throat> and then they will say, okay, you are a purple tee player. And what I've seen, or what we've seen, uh, is that golfers who try this method out, and that's everyone from tour-caliber players, uh, folks who compete on various tours, all the way down to you know, Mrs. Haberkamp, right. Caddyshack, hitting the ball, about 100 yards, and they are having a blast. Huh. Uh, I've seen golf groups come in there and uh, look at this and say, okay, so there's there's no there's no ego involved here. It is it is strict data. It is the metrics say, you hit it this far, you play from this tee. Now, you don't have to adhere to this, but it is allowing the guy that hits it a long way to hit driver, eight iron into a green, uh, and his friend, will also hit driver eight iron into the green. They may be playing two sets up. Right. Um, and it has become uh, 
uh, in industry kind of uh, uh, well, the momentum has been big. We uh, the American Society of Golf Course Architects, and in particular, uh, Reese Jones, hmm. saw this, came out, took a look, and said, "We want to be a part of this." Really, uh, Reese, Reese Jones kind of, wants to be a part of of this this concept. Absolutely, he's already installed it at Medina Number Three. Uh, now, now, listeners, I, I actually knew that, <laughs> but I wanted oh. to, but I wanted to prop John into bringing that up because I had heard at, at John uh, when you and I last spoke about this concept. I remembered, holy cow! I know this is going on at Medina, uh, where I I live in the area, of course, and it was like that. That obviously was what John was talking about. So that just blo- <laughs> blows my mind that that I didn't make that connection sooner. So yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to feel like you make a difference. It's fun to feel like uh, uh, that the organization that you're a part of is doing something really for the betterment of, of golf, and, and that's obviously not just for the company's bottom line. And, uh, and the people that have been involved in this and the people that have benefited from this, I mean, the number of rounds at Longleaf have skyrocketed because people were playing more. Why? Because they're enjoying it more. They're playing faster. I mean, you think about all the shots uh, for, um, forgive me for sounding so stereotypical here, but there are women's groups uh, mm-hmm. that play from that just aren't fair to them. Mm-hmm. But those are the only options they have. And so certain par fours, they really just realistically cannot reach in regulation. So they've got what uh, one friend of mine who's an architect, Bill Bergen, calls inconsequential shots where they have to hit a drive and then they have to hit a three wood before they actually have a shot onto the green that that matters for their scoring on a on a par four right and uh so rounds that used to take four hours and 45 minutes are all of a sudden taking four hours or in nine hole leagues used to be 220 are now taking about you know an hour 50 to two hours and they are having a blast so they come out and they play more they have more fun. They have more people playing. Uh, it's just this great cycle uh, of growing, of growing the game, of, of building up the health of the game. You know, it's so, interesting. It, not to interrupt, but it's interesting because my my wife plays the game, and she uh, played college softball full ride four years. She's she can hit the ball, but to your point that you just brought up, you know, stereotypically or or I don't know, that's not the right word, but traditionally. You know, uh, women are, are asked to play the forward tees. And I remember around vividly where we played at a local course here where she did just that. And to your point, every single time she hit driver, she found her, she was driving directly into a hazard or a bunker or it just it wasn't fair. It wasn't it wasn't set up for her to have the best experience that she could. And I remember her looking at me at one point. She goes, what's the point? No matter what I yeah. do, I either have to hit driver and play out of the sand every single hole, or I hit seven iron where I have to hit three wood for my second shot. Exactly. Yeah. That's so. Uh, you know, if she were playing at a long leaf system course, uh, there, Adam, um, because that is uh, gender neutral. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It just matters how far your ball goes, and that's the key you play from. So you easily could see any number of men and or ladies playing from the same set of tees. And, and, and there's no, uh, there, there's nothing, there's, there's no, uh, uh, 
oh, I'm sorry, the word's not coming to me, so I'll just come with, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Um, because that's just simply how far you hit, you hit the ball. And, you know, I, I laugh all the time because we do need to, as an industry, we need to kind of break this idea that the, uh, and I, I'm a traditionalist uh, in many, many, many ways. Um, but the idea that certain norms and the culture of golf needs to change in some ways, uh, I very much agree with as well. I'll give you a quick example sure. uh, at my club. Sure. Uh, and my club is a uh, ridiculously good playing club. Um, uh, I got a buddy of mine, his index is one, less than one. Hmm. And he was in flight three of the club championship. So we just have a lot of pride in how good these players are. Wow. Um, but, uh, you know, it's also one of those that pace of play is extremely important. And I raised, there was some hackles raised. Uh, I had a, uh, <clears throat> on one particular Saturday morning a couple years ago, uh, when one of the female members of the club, uh, I invited to play with us in, in my group on Saturday morning. And we show up, and a couple of the uh, older guys was like, oh, you know, oh, this is going to be, can't hold up the course. This is just, this is a problem. Oh, she also happens to be a former collegiate All-American golfer, hmm. uh, finest at USGA. You know, and she, she, she was 68 there, rolled out of bed to shoot 68. <laughs> and, you know, but they had no idea, right? Because they just, they're, they're so blinded by what they traditionally think of when they see uh you know, young lady, uh, bring her golf clubs uh, up on the range on a Saturday morning. Um, there are a lot of, a lot of ways that golf can be fun for everyone. I, I don't. I think that we need to, as long as pace of play, which is huge, uh, can be kept up. As long as the uh, the uh, golf course uh, does a good job of not only uh, maintaining that, but you know, providing a proper golf course, uh, good conditions for people to play. I. I feel good about golf. I feel good, but you know, if I were uh, uh, a betting man, uh, I you know I would I would bet high on the future of golf. I, I'd invest in that. Yeah, I don't blame you. I mean, the story that you outlined for us and the concept that you described sounds extremely exciting. And John, I want to transition a little bit, you know, to a few questions here that I've got jotted down and. You know, a little bit of rapid fire. This is something a little bit new that I'm trying. Uh, you, you may know or you may remember I actually had uh, a buddy of yours, Josh Babbitt, on uh, earlier uh, on a previous episode. He says hello, by the way. <laughs> and uh, he had a few uh, answers to these questions. But first and foremost, as a guy like yourself who travels all over the place or who has traveled all over the place, you see a lot of airports. In your opinion, what what is the best airport to get in and out of, and which is the worst? Uh, the best airport to get in and out of is a little airport in Bend, Oregon, um, because it's so small and there's never a wait. Um, the other is uh, whatever I don't know the name of the airport, but it was uh, the only time in my life I got to fly private. Um, so wherever that airport is in St. Louis, uh, God bless them because that was one of the great experiences of my life. Nice. Uh, commercially, uh, I do not like. Please, please, nobody send me hate tweets. Um, I don't like the New York airports. Mm -hmm. uh, LaGuardia, I just never really had a, a, a real smooth, great experience there. 
uh, and I'll go ahead and throw my own airport under the bus in uh, Atlanta. You know, if you're, you don't know what you're doing in Atlanta, I've helped more lost people uh, than I, I care to count. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and all right, let's go ahead and throw one more. Orlando. Mm-hmm. All my golf buddies know this. Uh, leaving Orlando, that security line, uh, every year after the show. Um, well, that's like waiting for a Disney, Disneyland, <laughs> Disney World ride there. So, yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. So those are, those are probably my, uh, those are my least. Um, and as far as my, uh, if there's one commercial airport that I think, okay, this is going to be uh, pretty easy, smooth in and out. Uh, <clears throat> all right, let's go with uh, West Palm Beach. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, that's uh, it's pretty and it's uh, it's big enough to get you where you need to go, but it's it's not so big that it's uh, it's easy to get in and out of, uh, get your rental car, get out, take you back. Perfect, perfect. Now, obviously, you eat a lot of places too, and you go to a lot of cities as you've just described. Where's the best uh, city that you could think of to grab a quick meal? Uh, to grab a quick meal. Um, San Francisco has a great uh, variety, um, and it's it, you know it's better if you're on a company expense account. Uh, but uh, I always thought I always enjoy meeting friends for dinner uh, in that area. Um, you know the, the steakhouses in uh, both. Uh, I'm thinking Kansas City, Tulsa, mm-hmm. uh, which I went to several times, obviously with. At Folds of Honor, uh, has, has some good steakhouses. Uh, and, you know, I'll go ahead and say that Orlando, during the show, always has some really good options. So uh, let's go with those three. That makes a lot of sense. And you had mentioned the PGA show, which is coming up here in a couple weeks from the time that we're recording this. Do you feel that the PGA show still worth it in your mind? Um, yes. Uh, and I'll, I'll caveat that with, uh, to me, the greatest thing about golf, and we've talked uh, today, and again, thank you for having me on, uh, we've talked about so many things that we love about golf, the places that you can go, the experiences you have, the golf courses, and how beautiful they are. Um, the best thing about golf is the people. And there's not one other time of the year when you have so many great people from the golf world, aggregated, collected in one place. I have met some of my greatest friends in life there at that show. You mentioned Josh Babbitt with uh, the Hackers Paradise. Uh, Josh and I met by chance uh, at a Nike golf event a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I immediately knew, hey, here's somebody um, that is a, that's just a good person. You know, it was a lot of fun. Uh, uh, some of my other good friends, I know that you're friends with uh, Chad Coleman, hashtag Chad from Callaway Golf. Yeah, we, we, we Chad, chat every so often. Okay, well, Chad has been my guest, at a, my member guest uh, here at my club um, a couple of times. Nice. Uh, another friend over, uh, again, with uh, Callaway Golf is Harry Arnett. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harry, Harry has a, a good, close Atlanta tie. I met him at the show, uh, and we talk, gee, especially during football season, almost every day through some text uh, about the Falcons. Um, you know, everybody, people I've met who are just starting companies, some of them I know are going to go huge. Some of them I say I'm never going to see them here again. Uh, but at that show, uh, you get a real pulse for the passion and 
the excitement that golf evokes uh, out of out of folks from a uh, both a personal and a professional sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I love that. I love that energy. I love that hope uh, that I, I see. Uh, and and you know the the show happens. It really only can happen uh, when the big players are, are there and are excited. So when Titleist and uh, Cobra and uh, TaylorMade uh, and then and Callaway, where uh, so many of my friends are, uh, when they're there and they have good product and people are excited to see it, that drives the show. But for me, um, it's the smaller stories that I really, really appreciate and enjoy. And that goes along with the people that I mentioned. So, yes, the show is worth it because the, the people that you meet, the connections you make from a professional and a personal uh, basis, um, I, I think it's absolutely worth it. This will be my 15th show. Um, you know, a lot of the things that used to happen at the show back in the day, going ahead and put on my grandpa voice, <laughs> uh, those probably have become a little bit more secondary. You know, product launches happen probably more on Twitter than they do at the show now. Yeah. Uh, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, and orders are still being written at the show, maybe not as much as they were 10, 20 years ago. Um, so the, there's a, maybe a different expectation from the companies in terms of, are we going to make our money back here? Uh, you might, but it's probably a different type of ROI. You may make it in terms of publicity and relationships as opposed to straight uh, bottom line revenue. I got one more for you, and we'll get you out of here, John. John Kim is a very common name. You've told me this. You somehow secured at John Kim with a little blue check mark on Twitter. Uh, that's yeah. that's incredible. How did that happen? <laughs> that is a uh, unfortunately maybe maybe my single best uh, greatest accomplishment, um, <laughs> and that doesn't have much to do with it. Um, the we had a uh, representative from Twitter come into the office when I was at Turner Sports. And, uh, of course, Turner Sports had spent a significant amount of money with Twitter, so they were, they were uh, predispositioned to, to be nice to us. And our representative, that kind of overall Turner Sports, our social media director, um, said to the uh, lady from Twitter, said, I really want you to meet John Kim. He, is, uh, he has done some good things in the social sphere with, with one of our properties and uh, recently won an award, et cetera. <clears throat> and at the time, I'd gone through two or three Twitter names, and they were awful. <laughs> I don't know how, how weak they were. And uh, so we met, and uh, she was very cordial and nice and uh, real, you know, professional, but just also personable. And she said, well, as, as a good professional would do, she said, well, if there's anything I can ever do for you, let me know. I'm sure she didn't think I would take her up on that. And I said, well, Lauren, uh, there is. And uh, she kind of laughed, and she was like, you're not going to ask for a verification check mark, are you? And I was like, oh, no. I said, you know, if that would have happened, that'd be great. But no, that's not what I'm asking for. I said, I need a better Twitter name. <laughs> and she said, well, what's wrong with the one you have? And I told her, and she's like, oh, that is bad. <laughs> and I said, uh, there is a at John Kim out there who somebody – Probably the day that Twitter launched, somebody claimed that name, but they never tweeted. They mm. never they they followed like one person. They didn't tweet. It was a dead account. <clears throat> and she said, "Well, we do have some rules regarding whether we can take a name from some other account." 
that already exist. But let me see what I can do. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was there actually for two days. So the next day, uh, I walk into the office, and she said, have you looked at your uh, account yet? And I said, no. And she said, we'll do that because uh, I need to know if something happened before I leave here this afternoon. So okay. So I log in, and I look at my account, and I see my account name has changed to at John Kim. And this got the little blue mark, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm somebody. <laughs> I am someone. Now, hilariously, there's an actor out there on a show. It's actually, ironically, a Turner show uh, on TNT called The Librarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is John Kim as well. Yep. Uh-huh. So I get probably, over the course of a week, a dozen tweets designed for someone else, not me. Uh, and And... Sometimes I just ignore them. Sometimes I'll answer them in a, in a kind of a fun way. But for him, whenever that show is on, and I don't even know, Rebecca Romaine and John Larroquette are also on the show or something. So it's got a pretty good following. Yep. Whenever that show is on, uh, my Twitter just notifications light up. <laughs> and it's awesome. And uh, he and I have connected and, and kind of talked online a few times about it. And, I've sent him a golf bag with John Kim on it, just even though he doesn't play golf. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's a blessing 99% of the time. It's a curse 1% of the time. Um, but if that's, uh, uh, if, that's my one, if that's my one accomplishment before my time here is up, I think that's pretty good. Just, uh, uh, you know, a small town kid from Riverdale gets the – it's the most coveted Twitter name in the universe is the way I look at it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that is Mr. John Kim, uh, not the star of Turner Sport, Turner's uh, <laughs> Librarians, uh, but he's, uh, he's done a lot of great things in golf. I hope that came across in today's episode. You can follow him on Twitter, at John Kim, as we just discussed. John, I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and doing this uh, with us today. Yeah, anytime, Adam. Uh, thank you so much for having me and continue the great work.